So a few weeks ago, I began talking about wisdom. You know, the practice that we're doing here is a wisdom practice, a practice to help us to see into the true nature of experience. Because our understanding of the way things are will lead us to happiness. I spoke about it a couple of weeks ago uh, in speaking about right view. This is the uh, first of the Noble Eightfold Path. And I spoke about the first aspect of right view being that of the understanding of karma, the understanding of the law of cause and effect, and how this gives us a conceptual framework that can point us in the direction of a liberating insight that is the opening of the wisdom eye. It leads us in our lives in the direction of freedom when we really take the law of karma to heart, when we recognize that what we do, what we say, has implications, and that we can do and say things, be aware of the seeds that we're planting in our lives so that they lead us in the direction of true happiness. This is the understanding of right view on the mundane level. There's also a superior right view. A, uh, the superior right view leads to that complete unbinding of the heart, freedom, the awakened state. And this um, complete unbinding of the heart happens through the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And so it's the Four Noble Truths is what I would like to speak about tonight. The Four Noble Truths, they're the quintessential teachings of the Buddha. We may often think of them as being beginning teachings. We often hear about them. You know, if you pick up a book about Buddhism, and it is sure to have a chapter on the Four Noble Truths. I mean, it just does. That's the way of it. But this teaching is so rich that as a beginner, it can have some meaning to us. And yet the culmination of the path is in the deepest level of understanding these same four truths. We find that they can be uh, a very helpful way of investigating in the course of our lives. They give us a helpful framework in which to look at experience. 
we find that these Four Noble Truths are very helpful and relevant to our lives. The Buddha was very practical, very down-to-earth. And so I find that, that, well, to say that they're easy to understand is not not really true on some levels, because we we have to look. And I'll I'll say a little bit more about that as I go through the Four Truths. So just... I'm sure we're quite familiar with them, but to say it once again, the Four Noble Truths. First, the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, that there is a cause for this suffering, and that is craving, and that there is an end to this suffering, the cessation of suffering, and that there is very practical ways in which any human being whom applies themselves can realize this end of suffering. So the first of these Four Noble Truths, the truth of suffering, and this is what we often hear translated as life is suffering. This is what gives Buddhism uh, the bad rap that it sometimes finds in the greater world. And, you know, I know when I first came and started sitting with the Burmese Sayadas, and, you know, you hear about suffering talk after talk after talk. And I was like, wow, man, these Buddhists, they got a thing about suffering. I'd come from a way of practice that was about expressing your joy, celebrating life. And so to sit there and listen to this talk about suffering, it was like, come on, get over it. (laughs) But, you know, then there I'd sit, and uh, you know, pain in the knee starts squiggling a little bit, and you know, that leads into restlessness, and, and then you know, I get really doubtful about how this practice can work, this practice for me, and you know, find that, yep, there's suffering. It took me a while to see it, you know, because at first it was, it was the teachings, you know, it wasn't being taught right. Or, you know, there was just many, many places of blame for my own discomfort. And you know, so long as I was caught up in that blame, there was no scene of the suffering. But the Buddha, he just called it straight. He said, you know, and this is, a, this is paraphrasing, this is not his words, but um, he just pointed right to it. He said, as human beings, things can get nasty, things can get unpleasant that there is just some level of dissatisfaction that we encounter through being a human being. He didn't shy away from it. I was thinking about it today and I thought, well, you know, I feel like I've come from the Barbie doll culture. I grew up with these little Barbie dolls. They had smiles on their face. They were happy. They were beautiful. Where was life suffering? You know, Barbie had Ken. (laughs) Life was great. Who talked about suffering? No, it was covered over, denied, suppressed. That was the way 
one looked at it. But not the Buddha. No, there's... He talked that there's a, a couple of levels to suffering. There is just this basic level where we, you know, from being born, there will be consequences that will be unpleasant. Born into a body that grows, that changes, that ages. Today I was out walking the loop. I ran into one of the neighbors here. She's 91 years old. She'd walked down to her mailbox. And we, we were walking up, and we could see her in the distance, a woman who I've spoken to many times, but I haven't seen for a long time. But she was just standing by her mailbox. We got near to her. She didn't have a coat on. She didn't have a hat on. She didn't have gloves on. She got stuck. She couldn't get back. She needed help. As we were helping her back, she said, aging is really hard. (laughs) And then she said, don't age. (laughs) We know what the option is. (laughs) But, you know, it's not easy. And we know it more and more as we age. As I was continuing on the walk with my friends, it was amazing how many things related to aging we were talking about. Our knees hurt, our back hurt, we have this disease, we have that, we have that. You know, it went on and on and on. And from the Buddhist perspective, his understanding, this happens. But when we personalize it, when we take it to uh, identify with it in some way, it really becomes suffering. So there's just one level of suffering where it's just because we're born. We will encounter these difficult things. But when we personalize it, it becomes more. And this is the other aspect of suffering. That, you know, we um, react to conditions in life in a way that takes us into what's sometimes called extraordinary suffering where it's our reactivity to the way things are that is suffering. It really doesn't matter in life whether we are born into royalty, whether we're born into great wealth, whether we're born into poverty. We are going to hit this level of suffering. It is just a part of what we will encounter. Many of us may feel that we don't suffer so much in our lives. But this too can be because we aren't looking closely. When we look closely, we begin to see there is a level of dissatisfaction. Even when things are good, there can be this dissatisfaction. When things are going well, we often become afraid of it changing, that we want things to be just as they are right now. We may not be aware of an underlying stress of trying to protect 
whatever it is that we have in life that we find pleasant, that we are um, enjoying in that moment. Sometimes in our practice, it may be that for a period of time there's a lot of calmness, and yet there's this niggling bit, in a piece in the mind that says, don't get attached here. And it almost becomes a worry or anxiety in relationship to this calm, this peace that we're enjoying. So we can at times find ourselves trying to manipulate our lives so that there is a sense of continuity with that which is pleasant. And we don't experience the the tension, the distress of doing this because we aren't paying close attention. These pleasant experiences are unsatisfactory just due to the fact that they are not permanent, that they will change. And there comes with changing experience a relentlessness to it. And this can be even with pleasant experience. A couple of years ago, three years ago, I had a a, a good chunk of time for meditation practice. I had two months of practice, and then I had a 10-day break, and then I was practicing for another six weeks. In uh, that period where I had the 10-day break, I experienced something of this relentlessness of the changing experience. I stepped out into life, and there was just a lot that I had to do. And a lot of it was very pleasant experience. But the sheer volume of it, the continual change of it, was exhausting. That there was a relentlessness to it. And I actually find it a lot in my life. Because I live here, it's pleasant. You know, there's a, there, there are so many wonderful things in my life. Seeing you every day, <laughs> uh, the people that I meet, the different beings that come through this place, the different teachings I get exposed to. No, I could go to the main retreat center. I can go to BCBS. There's just so much access to the Dhamma. But if I try to do it all, (laughs) it's exhausting. And there's a relentlessness we encounter, you know, through, through things like this, just through having a body. There's a relentlessness to it. You know, that we have to take care of it day after day after day. We can't decide to take a holiday from it. You know, you can't decide, I'm not going to go to the toilet today, it's too much. We have to do this. um, So this in itself is another form of dukkha. So there's different levels that there is this dukkha. There's obvious levels of suffering in our lives. And then there's the suffering that just comes from change and the relentlessness.
a lot of times in our life we look the other way from suffering. You know, whether it's seeing somebody walking down the street who's maybe deformed, has some handicapped, um, and we might just you know, avert our gaze. It might be on the level of experiencing anger in our mind and just wanting to push it away. Or experiencing greed and not wanting to see it. It can be by way of believing falsely that we will never age, that we can defy the aging process. But the Buddha said it's necessary that we come to a place of accepting, understanding that there is suffering. He said suffering was to be understood. And we understand suffering when we no longer personalize it, when we're no longer identified. We're no longer defining ourselves by it. If you just look at how you relate to unpleasant experience, when unpleasant experience arises, are we defining ourselves? It can often be that when things get really unpleasant, we think, I'm no good. We're defining ourselves by the unpleasant experience or this tendency to overlook or the tendency to manipulate away from unpleasant experience. But when we can just be with unpleasant experience, it starts to show that there is understanding coming, that there is some sense that this is just the way things are. When you're practicing, and suffering comes in some form. Notice how it feels when you say, I'm suffering. And notice what it feels like when you say, this is suffering. When we depersonalize it, it's like taking the load. It's taking the loadedness out of it. So Buddha said of dukkha, or what we often call suffering, and of course, we've all probably heard many times, suffering is not a great translation, but it points towards the unsatisfactoriness, the hard-to-bearness of this. But the Buddha said, birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, sickness is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Association with what one dislikes is dukkha, and separation from what one loves is dukkha. Not to get what one wants is dukkha. In short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. So the Buddha talks about it on, you know, the really obvious levels of dukkha, that we experience, 
going down to the very subtle levels of dukkha that we experience, going into where he says, in short, the five aggregates of clinging are dukkha. This is what um, Joseph has been talking about for a number of weeks now. When we understand there is suffering, there comes a very natural turning of the mind towards suffering, rather than away from it, but towards it, because there's the recognition that if we can understand this, there can be freedom. We start to take an interest in this suffering, wanting to know for ourselves what the cause of this suffering is. There's a movement of mind from wanting to get rid of something to wanting to understand it. So the cause of suffering, that of craving. Thirst is often a word that is used to describe this. It's where there's this pull, this constantly seeking satisfaction. You know, and just to know what it's like when one is really thirsty, that uh, uh. And so this translates into the way we're relating to our lives, relating to this body-mind experience, this wanting, this pull into becoming. The Buddha talked about there being three different ways in which we experience this thirst. Through the desire for sense pleasure, where we're seeking beautiful sights, sounds, beautiful mind states, beautiful experiences. Even on retreat, we can see how easily we get pulled into this. You know, where we want to sit in the way that we're most comfortable. Sometimes we might want to sit in the sunshine to feel the warmth. Or in a cup of tea, you just go to pick up a tea pick up the cup of tea, and your hand touches the cup, and there's the warmth, and there's just this, ah, you know, there's just this movement of mind that's relishing of it. And, you know, it's not that that's wrong that's, that's there, but it's really that attachment to that which is the source of suffering. The Buddha likened the state of um, this form of desire as to a, one who is in debt, we become in debt, in bondage to this world of sense pleasure. We tend to be not so aware of it because we become mesmerized, enchanted by it. We really start looking at the object of our desire, and it's tantalizing. Winnie the Pooh is one of my great teachers on this. There's a a line that he said that um, just really resonated with me. 
he was talking about how eating honey was a very good thing to do. But he said, there is a moment before you eat it that is even better than when you do. And this is where we get enticed. You know, it's so seductive. It's that promise of happiness. And then the sad part is that when that happens, the mind is fixated on the object of desire. We lose context. We start going for what it is we want. This is from Robert Burns. Pleasures are like poppy seeds spread. You seize the flower, it blooms, is shed. Or like the snowfall on the river, a moment white, then melts forever. These desires, they're so elusive. We find that when we're chasing them, chasing after them, you know, there can only be one moment of satisfaction and then it's gone, it's shed. And if we're in that enchantment, we just then move on for the next moment. But if we pay attention, it's really different. Actually, only recently I was paying attention. You know, I I was going through a period where I was actually kept getting what I wanted. You know, that in itself is a bit scary. But so, you know, some object of desire, and I get it. And there would just be this moment where there was a total rush. But when I paid closer attention, what I noticed was that what was happening with that rush in that moment, there was a releasing from the grip of desire. That in that moment of wanting something, there is a tightness that comes a fixation, and when it lets go, it's a releasing. And I also recognized that it could be very easy to think that that releasing was the satisfaction of getting what one wants. There is momentary pleasures. You know, there is moments of satisfaction. It's not to deny that. They do happen but they don't last. And the energy that we put into getting them, and how we put ourselves, or put what we want before the world at large. You know, sometimes these desires seem so small, and yet they can fuel a lot of suffering, left unchecked they can create a lot of suffering. So Buddha had quite a task of, you know, getting people to look deeper than being caught up in this level of sense pleasure. Needing to expose the danger of living life in this way. And it's really only through 
understanding, through seeing for ourselves that we can really come to know this. When we feel the burn of desire within our own minds, when we feel the contraction of heart, when we experience the limited view that desire offers, when we experience the limited form of happiness, it stops making sense why we do this over and over. Exploring through our practice this attachment to sense pleasure. Experiences will be pleasant, but it's our attachment that is the suffering. So noticing what happens when desire arises. Noticing what happens when you get what you want. Noticing what's happening when there is no desire. The second form of craving is the desire for becoming, the desire for continued existence. We experience this over and over in our lives when we identify, when we become our experiences. We experience it in our practice when we are doing the practice to become better, to become a better human being, to become a good meditator, to become enlightened. When our practice is self-referencing, aggrandizing, when we're practicing to enhance our self-image, Ajahn Chah, the famous Thai forest monk, master, teacher, um, he once said, what are we practicing for? We are practicing in order to relinquish, not to gain something. A woman told me that she was suffering. When I asked her what she wanted, she said she wanted to be enlightened. I replied, as long as you want to be enlightened, you will never become enlightened. Don't want anything. When we were growing up, we were probably asked many times what we wanted to become. And so to not want to become is a radical shift. 
we're trained in becoming. You know, from the time we're small children, we're always looking to how we can become better, improve. When we pay attention, we see the wantingness. We see the craving. We see the dissatisfaction. Many of you have reported in your practice how often sitting, and it may be pleasant, easeful, and yet there's some expectation there. You know, as if we're sitting, waiting for some big experience to happen that's going to radically shift our lives. And it's this wanting, this craving. We become with mind states, whether it's happiness, sadness, anger. When we identify, it's a way of becoming. The third form of craving, grasping, is the desire not to be. We find that there comes a futility uh, in in chasing after changing experiences that becomes tiring, wearying, and we find that we can want to get rid of experience. We figure, you know, if it's not going to bring us satisfaction, well, let's just get rid of it. We can find this desire not to be um, in the world at large when there's addiction. Uh, often is this sense of wanting to annihilate, um, wanting to commit suicide is a strong form of this desire not to be. But this desire not to be is also found in just wanting to get rid of knee pain, wanting to get rid of thoughts. So in listening to this, one might think, well, if we're not practicing to become something, and we're not practicing to get rid of anything, what are we doing? And this is really the key to the cessation of suffering. So we're not becoming, we're not getting rid of, what do we do? We just let be. In my own life, you know, I've spent a fair bit of time reflecting on these Four Noble Truths, looking at them in the course of my daily life, as well as on the cushion. 
And I've noticed that oftentimes there's the seeing that there is suffering. There's the seeing of the cause of suffering. And then many times that can just lead me into kind of a depressed state. You know, this sense that life is suffering. But if we really pay attention, if we turn up the heat on the suffering, then we will find that there is a natural letting go that happens. Many times we're not paying close enough attention, not really letting ourselves be with that which feels like suffering. We need to explore the cause of suffering for ourselves, to feel the pain of being caught in craving, feel the pain of being caught in becoming, or the not wanting. Sometimes we'll experience it in really gross forms, you know, and, and then it's easier to see when anger is present and we're caught in it. If we stay with that anger, if we... Is this up loud enough? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. If we stay with that anger and we really feel it, to be identified with it, then there comes a point where letting go happens naturally. Much the same way as a child picking up a hot coal. You don't have to tell them to put it down. It's a natural reaction. When we come close enough to suffering and feel it, know it, understand it, a letting go happens. This is from Ajahn Buddhadasa, another Thai forest monk. He says, We must realize that just as it is necessary to see the danger of fire in order to be afraid of being burnt, so we must also see the danger of fires of greed, aversion, and delusion, and of clinging to self, which is the root cause of all fires. Then we become gradually bored with and averse to these fires. We are able to relax our grip on them and never think of lighting any more fires. So the active investigation, the active inquiry into the first noble truth, the second noble truth, the truth of suffering and the cause of suffering, will bring us to an understanding of the cessation of suffering. The third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, This is where the mind is no longer bound by greed, hatred, and delusion. Where this great thirst has been cooled. It's referred to as the final quenching of all things that are ablaze. Nibbana 
are, is often spoken about as being the unborn, the unmade, unoriginated, unformed, or unconditioned, the deathless. It's also spoken of as being the highest peace, incomparable safety, and the highest wisdom, the further shore, and the island amidst the flood, the cool cave of shelter, and the calming of all constructing activities, stable, timeless. We also find in the Buddhist teachings that more is said about the path to liberation than is said about Nibbana itself. I think this is because we will often try to conceptualize. So if we say the unborn, the unmade, the unoriginated, the unformed, the unconditioned, the deathless, we try to form some concept, some idea of it. And then we try to imagine ourselves into that experience. And we mistake that for realization. So this is where the Buddha was wise. He pointed to what in our own experience we can look at which will lead to an unbinding, a freeing of the heart. But that that is something that has to be realized, that can't be spoken of in a way that will bring us that experience. It has to be discovered. But it is important that we have some sense, some understanding that there is a way out of suffering. There is an end to it. And we can realize this in our own experience every day. We can notice the moments when suffering is not present. Moment, notice the moments where there is some form of the end of suffering. It can be a moment where we have been lost in thought and there comes the recognition of this and then it disappears. There's a release from that sense of confusion being lost. It can be with very strong mind states, being caught in anger, aversion. As we become aware of them, they lose their power, their grip. There's a releasing, a letting go. We can moments, we can recognize moments where we may have the, uh, our practice may be very balanced, that um, there's a coolness in the mind, 
where the mind is not pushed and pulled, we can recognize that there's no suffering in this moment. We can recognize when concentration is very strong and protects the mind from the hindrances. This is a moment where we can recognize a type of cessation of suffering. I remember a few years ago I was doing a concentration practice during a retreat. And it was just really getting a sense of what the mind is like when it's protected from the hindrances. And so this was a retreat where at some point I realized, you know, during the course of a morning of practice, the thought, I wonder what's for lunch, would never arise. Now that the, the mind was protected from desire. Or during that retreat, at times there, I would just be standing and there was no leaning forward at all. There was just standing. Or, you know, sometimes I get in my legs restless energy and it, it's really a jumpy energy. But there was just the recognition of the jumping, and there was no reaction to it when the mind is protected. So the third noble truth the cessation of suffering. We can experience it momentarily when greed, hatred, and delusion are not present in the mind. This path culminates when there is an understanding that uproots these tendencies in the mind. And the mind becomes freed from these tendencies. The fourth noble truth being the path, the way to release the heart. This is what we could call the prescription for freedom. What we can follow in our lives that will lead us to this liberating insight, wisdom the path being composed of virtue, ethical conduct, where we live in a respectful way, respectful to ourselves, respectful to the world at large, where we bring harmony into the world. The other, another aspect of this path is the training of the mind, so that we aren't just run by our habits of mind, where we actually train the mind, turn it towards seeing clearly, doing so by strengthening concentration, effort, mindfulness. This is what helps wisdom to come forth.
funny I had something that was going to um, very concisely describe the Noble Eightfold Path but I didn't bring it <laughs> hmm. it's a quotation from Sayadaw Ujanaka, one of my Burmese teachers and he was just talking about and he repeated this over and over again so you, you would almost think I should have it etched in my mind but I don't have that kind of a memory <laughs> But it was how in each moment when we practice correctly, all of the elements of the Noble Eightfold Path come into play. Just by turning our, making the effort to turn our attention to taking a step, taking, experiencing the breath, uh, just work, turning our attention towards our experience, we are naturally uh, bringing in right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, which in while we're doing this on retreat, just by virtue of the way we're practicing, we're doing this in an ethical way. Um, so it's in uh, a way of practicing right speech, right action, right livelihood, and that through this comes the culmination of wisdom, the being able to see things as they are. Um, that this brings us to, into right understanding and right thought being that which turns the mind towards our experience in a helpful way. I did better than I thought I would. <laughs> Anyhow, so the, the fourth noble truth. There is a path. There is a way. Many have walked us. And it's for us to walk. This is what he's given to us, this gift. No, to lay it out in simple, practical way. And then we just have to do it. And he never said it would be easy. In fact, you know, he almost never gave these teachings. But he did. And through that, many people have realized the end of suffering. And they were all kinds of people. That's what I, I love in reading, you know, back of the stories of the Buddha, the, the suttas. There was, you know, oh, there was thieves, murderers, um, prostitutes, dullards. Uh, you know, there was just every kind of person. It wasn't just special people. And it's you and it's me. We have these teachings. We have this opportunity. This is what we can do with our lives. Just simply investigating these four noble truths. These four noble truths are said to be a cure for all that ails us as humans. Often it's spoken of as the Buddha being the physician and giving a medical diagnosis. And um, uh, 
diagnosis, but there is suffering. There is a cause of that suffering. There is an end to that suffering. He said, the truth of suffering is to be known, understood, and to know that it is understood. The cause of suffering is to be known, and it's to be abandoned, and it's to know that it's been abandoned. He said, there's a cessation of suffering, and this is to be realized, and to be known when it's realized. And that there is a a path or a way out of suffering. And this path should be developed. And to know this path has been developed. The Buddha encouraged his disciples not to be discouraged, but to cultivate joy. Even though we talk so much about suffering, Because there is a path, a way of walking, that leads to the end of suffering, we can take joy in being on that journey and not be daunted by it, but to delight, to find a gladness of heart that we can walk this path. And we really begin to see through our own investigation that there is no choice. This is something that once we begin to understand on some level, we can't turn our backs on. We can't suddenly pretend that sense desire is going to bring us fulfillment. No, there's no going back. And yet, as we continue to walk the path, we find a lightening of the heart. We start to find the happiness that is not based on conditions. The happiness comes from the heart that is unbound. This is from uh, the Buddha and the Dhammapada. Whoever in this world overcomes this craving so hard to transcend, will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. So let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.